The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in stores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air. And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you speak to us, that you direct us by your spirit and by your word. And so direct us now in our faith that we might bear fruit to your glory and for the building up of your church and for the furthering of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. We ask for the spirit's help to these ends now as we pray in Jesus name. Amen. The expression to have skin in the game appears to have its primary application in the world of finance and apparently has been made popular by Warren Buffett, uh, referring to a situation in which high-ranking insiders use their money to buy stock in the company they are running. Another definition, uh, to be directly involved in or affected by something, especially financially. And the analogy seems to work this way. The skin would be the money and the game would be the investment. The precise origin of the phrase doesn't appear to be known, uh, though there is the the skins game in the world of golf. One format for this type of tournament is that there's prize money for each individual hole, or if then no one wins the hole, then the prize money would be carried over to the next hole or round, creating a progressive jackpot. But you get the idea. To, To have skin in the game means you're invested. You have reason to be involved. You have an interest in the outcome and so forth. Well, with the sixth plague against Egypt, we can rightly conclude that Egypt literally has skin in the game, that the Egyptians are directly affected in their own persons by this plague. This is the third plague of the second cycle of plagues. Uh, By way of quick review, remember that there are, are three cycles of plagues, one through three, four through six, and seven through nine. And that the plagues follow the model of the three-decker universe of water, land, and heavens or sky. Last week in the fifth plague and the death of the livestock, the emphasis was upon the land. And now we have an airborne plague of sorts as the text reveals. Still more, keep in mind that the the intensity is is ramping up. And whereas the first three plagues were were largely those of inconvenience, affecting Egyptians and Israelites, these second three have been focused solely on Egypt. And in plagues four and five, it's been primarily Egypt's economy that has come under attack. But now in the sixth plague, it's the, the physical persons of the Egyptians themselves that suffer this judgment. And we might rightly wonder what could possibly be here for us as the church, as God's people today. And yet another plague, 
Well, let's trust that this text also directs us to Christ and trains us in righteousness. Well, in keeping with how a third plague in the cycle is introduced, there's no real introduction. But the command to take action is given with no warning. Verse 8, And said Yahweh to Moses and to Aaron, Take to yourselves fullness of handfuls of soot from the kiln, and Moses, throw them to the heavens before the eyes of Pharaoh. First of all, what's a kiln? Well, it's an oven or furnace or heated enclosure used for a processing substance by burning, firing, or drying. Interestingly enough, the word ultimately borrows from the Latin colina, meaning kitchen, ancestor to the English word culinary. We might think of a kiln for making pottery of some kind. A kiln could also uh, be used for making bricks. It could very well be that the bricks that the Israelites had to make for Pharaoh's building projects were fired in a kiln, though one scholar argues the Egyptians sun-dried their bricks. In Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses tells Israel, But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So perhaps we are right to make an association between kiln and furnace as in relation to Israel's experience in Egypt. Second of all, what's soot? Well, back to the dictionary. It's a black substance formed by combustion or separated from fuel during combustion, rising in fine particles and adhering to the sides of the chimney or pipe conveying the smoke, especially the fine powder consisting chiefly of carbon that colors smoke. And, and the word that's used here in the text is more specific than just ashes, as we might generally think. And it's, it's a word that's only found here in Exodus 9. What color is soot? Well, soot is black. It's the residue that builds up from burning something and would naturally be found in a kiln. You know, if you think of Disney's Mary Poppins, particularly Dick Van Dyke's character Bert, uh, whose occupation is a chimney sweep, and, you know, his, of his general appearance while he's on the job or any of the scenes with him or Mary or the children getting soot from going up or down the chimney, then you get the idea of what this is. So Moses and Aaron are both to get handfuls of this, but only Moses is specifically directed to throw it in the air in front of Pharaoh. Now, why that was the case, we can only guess, or where that was, we can only guess, whether in the palace, outside, somewhere, those details aren't given. And why Moses only? Well, the text is, you know, it's, it's quite specific with that detail. Well, we can't be too dogmatic as to the reason, but since Yahweh designated Moses to be as God to Pharaoh, perhaps it's to further demonstrate that it's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who is clearly bringing about this plague. Remember that in the first cycle, there was an emphasis upon Aaron's rod in connection with the plagues. But with the second cycle of plagues, it's Yahweh who clearly brings them about. Maybe Aaron gave his handfuls to Moses to throw into the air. Uh, again, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us. Verse 9, And it shall become a dust cloud upon all the land of Egypt, and become upon the man and upon the cattle for an eruption sprouting boils in all the land of Egypt. Now, a few details to note. The word I've rendered, dust cloud, isn't used very often in Scripture. It's different from the word for dust, such as we find in Genesis 3, for example, and seems to appear in association with clouds of dust on a number of occasions, hence the expression here. 
Also notice the repetition of all the land of Egypt and how the, the first part of the verse makes a general statement about the dust cloud and then the second part gives more spe- specifics about what will result. The boils mentioned here is a word that's found on several occasions in Scripture, most notably in Leviticus 13 in reference to leprosy and in Deuteronomy 28 in relation, in relation to the curses of the covenant, which echo this plague. And basically, it was Yahweh telling Israel, if you break the covenant, then you come under an Egypt-like judgment. But it's clearly an affliction of the skin, producing boils or blisters or sores of some kind, which also affected animals. This should remind us of the third plague, the plague of the gnats, which also explicitly mentions that it came upon the man and upon the cattle. The word for man that's used is Adam, just as in the third plague. And yet again, we find a decreation taking place as Yahweh brings judgment upon man and cattle, both of whom were created on the sixth day. As a bit of a side note, it's interesting to consider that when we read the first two chapters of Job, what's the progression of trials that come against him? We might say that the first round basically has to do with the economic disasters that befall his kingdom, including the loss of livestock. Even camels are explicitly mentioned, though significantly he also suffers the loss of sons and daughters. But then what does the second round involve? Well, physical affliction against Job's own person, particularly loathsome sores, which is the same word for boils that's used here. See, there's a similar progression of sorts here with the plagues, moving from economic to the physical person. Well, what do we read in verse 10? Well, we go from the instruction of the plan to the execution of it. And they took the ashes from the kiln, and they stood before the face of Pharaoh, and Moses threw them toward the heavens, and it became an eruption of blisters sprouting upon the man and upon the cattle. Again, no warning of any kind is mentioned, just the instruction given to Moses and Aaron and then the obedient execution of it. Now, there's another facet of this plague that we need to take into consideration, even the symbolism that's intended by it. What do I mean? Well, let's jump ahead for a moment. What's the ninth plague, which is the third plague of the third cycle? Darkness. Well, we get subtle hints toward that plague here in the sixth plague for sure, and even back to the third plague of gnats. How so? Well, when Moses throws the soot into the air and becomes a black dust cloud, what can clouds do? Block the sun. Now, this doesn't mean that the sun was completely blocked by the dust cloud, but it would have been to some degree. Uh, Many of you have experienced something similar to this probably just even a couple weeks ago when the particulates were in the atmosphere from the wildfires of, uh, in Canada. And you might remember if you were outside on that particular day, maybe it was a Thursday, it didn't completely block the sunlight, of course, but the sky looked kind of weird and there, was, there wasn't very much direct sunlight, if any at all, because of the haze in the sky. Well, think of this dust cloud in a similar fashion and even the swarm of gnats, though to a lesser degree. Still more bring to mind, what were the three main gods in Egypt? The Nile, Pharaoh, and the sun. So Yahweh continues to demonstrate his power and authority over the false gods and idols of Egypt. And in plagues three and six, he partially blocks the sun. And then in the ninth plague, he brings complete darkness over the land of Egypt. And these lesser plagues, if you will, serve as a warning of what's to come. The sixth plague foreshadows the ninth. 
And the seventh, which we hope to consider next week, points forward to the tenth, the death of the firstborn, which is also hinted at in the fifth. So for those paying attention who heed the warnings, then there's a place for repentance and finding protection in Yahweh. See, even as we noted last week, there was some mercy lined within Yahweh's warning of tomorrow and how Israel departed with a mixed multitude, meaning that there were God-fearing Egyptians who left with the Israelites. They were paying attention. They were clued in and came under Yahweh's protection, the God of the Hebrews. Well, moving on in verse 11, who makes somewhat of a surprise reappearance here? Although there may be some ironic humor in that they're mentioned, but then don't really appear. And the magicians could not prevail to stand before the face of Moses from the face of the boil or on account of the boil, for the boils were upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, we haven't heard about the magicians since the third plague when they were defeated by Aaron, unable to produce the gnats by their demonic arts. And recall how the first three plagues were a showdown of priests, Aaron versus these magicians, and how the gnats caused a disruption of the worship practice of the Egyptians, stinging or biting gnats on man and beast, which would have meant they weren't presentable, they weren't clean. Well, how much more so if they're afflicted with boils, blisters, and sores, and not just insect bites? What's more, these magicians, these pre-sorcerers, were not able to prevail, to overcome. They were powerless to remedy this plague upon their skin. They couldn't heal themselves, much less anyone else, and they would have been looked to for healing, but are powerless against this bodily ailment. So the text is clear to tell us they couldn't stand before Moses, which is rather an interesting expression when you stop and think about it. The word could not stand before is used two other times. In Judges 2.14, when Yahweh's anger is kindled against Israel so that they could not stand before their enemies. And in 1 Samuel 6.20, when Yahweh struck down 70 men for looking upon the ark, and the men of Beth Shemesh declare, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? So the expression here in Exodus conveys their, their total defeat before the power of Yahweh represented in Moses. Still more, the Egyptians were the doctors of the ancient world and had a a lesser god of plagues and healing from pestilence. So likely this serves as another polemic against Egypt's idolatry. But what's also pictured here is that Pharaoh is alone, that his advisors are, are down for the count, and that he no longer has their support, which takes an ironic twist that we'll note momentarily. Verse 12. And Yahweh strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as spoke Yahweh to Moses. Now, at first glance or first hearing, you might think this is more of the same. But did you hear the difference from plagues one through five? See, in each of those cases, the strengthening or the causing to be heavy or hardening of Pharaoh's heart was attributed to Pharaoh himself. But here with the sixth plague is the first time it's attributed to Yahweh. And here we have one of the three words that's used to refer to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But here it's more literally strengthened. And here's the irony to which I just alluded. Pharaoh doesn't have the support, the encouragement, the strength afforded to him by his advisors, the magicians. But here he's strengthened by Yahweh. 
we were told this was going to happen back in chapter 4 and verse 21. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your hand. But I will strengthen, I will harden his heart so that he will not send out the people. So it's the same verb. So Yahweh's strengthening, his hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned, is mentioned then. But now, this is the first time it's specifically associated with one of the plagues. And the text affords us a glimpse at the biblical tension of truth that's found here. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Did Yahweh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. It's both, not either or. As Matthew Henry observes, willful hardness is commonly punished with judicial hardness. If men shut their eyes to the light, it is just with God to close their eyes. And the text tells us Pharaoh did not listen. He did not hear Moses and Aaron as Yahweh spoke to Moses. And the text doesn't tell us explicitly that Moses and Aaron directly spoke to, uh, to Pharaoh in relation to this plague, though it seems implied. But we're hearing this familiar refrain, the accustomed theme of Pharaoh not hearing, of Pharaoh not listening. And this is a word that doesn't simply, you know, it doesn't simply mean receive information through your ears, but a hearing that requires a response in obedience. You may have employed similar language with your children when you've given them a particular command or piece of instruction which warrants them to do something, and when they don't readily move to do it, you may follow up with the question, did you hear me? Well, the word spoken is to result in obedience. And what's Pharaoh supposed to do? Send out the sons of Israel that they may serve Yahweh, that they may worship him in the wilderness. And clearly, once again, Pharaoh doesn't obey, which brings us to the end of the second cycle of plagues, anticipating the third, where the intensity of the judgment increases even more. And maybe we're inclined to think that this one was a bit inferior to the fifth, which wiped out Egyptian livestock in the field, greatly affecting Egypt's local, national, and international economies. But don't forget the boils came upon all the Egyptians. It affected them personally, which increased the intensity of the affliction. All the Egyptians now have skin in the game. You know, and surely Pharaoh's approval rating took a serious hit after the second cycle of plagues, this last one especially. Since the eruption of boils came upon men, women, and children, upon the beasts, the whole nation is miserable. So what are some further implications of our text this morning, particularly as it relates to our calling as the church today? What further exhortation or encouragement is here for us? Well, let us recognize how the Lord can transform the means the enemy would use against God's people back upon the enemy. The detail about the soot from the kilns is quite specific. And if we understand that the soot was taken from the brick-making kilns that were part and parcel with the Hebrews' enslavement, then we can say that the enslavement becomes a curse to the Egyptians. In other words, the very thing that Pharaoh perceived as the exercising of his power and authority proves to be part of the undoing of his power and authority and his people. And surely, this isn't the only instance of the Lord working in this fashion on behalf of his people, and we do to recognize that he still works in a similar fashion today, particularly when tyrants persecute God's people, imprisoning or killing them, 
thinking they're squelching or stamping them out, when in fact the Lord often chooses such circumstances to further flourish His church. And how is that? And why is that? Could it be because it mirrors Christ's own experience? That at the point when it seems that Satan has triumphed with Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, with the death of the Son of God, it's precisely at that moment that Satan's defeat is sealed. What appears to be a victory is actually the beginning of a rout that the enemy never sees coming. I'm reminded of the sequence of events in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan is sacrificed on the stone table by the White Witch and the, the jubilation she and her minions express, seemingly having defeated the Great Lion, only to find out the next day at the Battle of Baruna that there's a greater reality, a deeper magic at work. And so we understand the same and believe that it is the Lord who fights on our behalf and that we don't put our trust in worldly means for deliverance whether chariots or horses, or tanks or planes, or ARs or handguns. No, we trust in the name of the Lord our God that our enemies will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. And that's the theology of the resurrection. Whether the resurrection at the end of history when Jesus returns in the fullness of the reality that he now possesses as King of kings and Lord of lords, or in the lesser, lesser resurrections the lesser resurrections that he provides for his people all along the way. History is full of examples of the ebb and flow of Christ's kingdom and church, at times prospering to the degree that the fruit is clear and for the benefit of the world. Whether in the times of Constantine, Alfred the Great, Charlemagne, the Reformation, or colonial America, and countless others. But those moments didn't happen in a vacuum. They didn't just some, suddenly come about, but were the fruit of the working of the kingdom in much less visible ways in the faithfulness of teaching and instruction, the preserving of the truth, and teaching the whole counsel of God, believing the Scriptures speak to the whole of life. And we can rest assured that there are such moments at work even now, even if they aren't necessarily visible to us in our present circumstances. And it could be the next visible breakout of Christ's kingdom will take place in another part of the world, whether China or Africa, South America, or somewhere else. But still, we don't despair, even though Christendom in the West is in decline. Rather, we more vigorously give ourselves to the faithful labors of church and home, training our children, sharing our faith with a watching world, and remaining steadfast in the promises of Christ. The enemy has overplayed his hand. He always does. And we're witnessing that today. And while it might feel like we're in a furnace and the heat is increasing... Nevertheless, we continue on knowing our God and Savior is exercising His power and authority, that He is at the bottom of it all, and the deeper magic is at work. And so we can readily and joyfully gather each week to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and how He's transformed death into life, how He's turned the cross, an instrument of execution, into the way in which all of His disciples must follow. We come and celebrate the healing power of the gospel that is the true hope of the world which declares that Christ is the great physician. You know, we bring our children to Christ's font to be baptized in testimony to the cleansing that Jesus provides even as they become part of the priestly people of God who are called to draw near and bow down before the throne of grace. And still more, in defiance against our enemies, we can confidently approach the table where to our Lord invites us each week to partake 
of bread and wine. His body and blood, the very memorials of his love and victory. We have skin in the game too, don't we? We're invested all the way because we know that our Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after our skin has been thus destroyed, yet in our flesh we shall see God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word and pray that you would use it as you have promised. We thank you for Christ and for his victory. We thank you for your invitation to us at his table. Indeed, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us for faithful service to you in the week that is to come, in the months and years that you have before us. Indeed, may we continue to rejoice and to sing, to give thanks, and to seek out to be faithful in obedience to your word. May we indeed seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.